0: Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland Podcast.
1: We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to
0: intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! And to all the others, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense to them. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Later, while the disciples were still talking about what had happened, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Kurt, and I'm a pastor here at Cascade, and I am incredibly excited, thanks Nathan, that it's Easter. You don't wear orange pants if you don't get excited about Easter. when we, when we talk about the resurrection, that's what Easter's about. That's the exciting element that we come here for, is that they go to find that Jesus isn't dead, but Jesus is alive. And I think for a lot of us, we engage this morning with a range of different emotions. Some of us are thrilled and excited, and we can't wait to hear the story and celebrate that Jesus is alive. And some of us are like, Really? Did that actually happen like that? And some of us are, look, man, I'm just here so I can get the ham later, all right? This is a family obligation at this point. Um, I always like to, if you're here, not under your own control, blink twice. Um, (laughs) Because we all engage this thing at different points with different emotions and different backgrounds. And I just want you to know that that's good. You're welcome here. All of those thoughts and emotions are welcome here because they were present in the story we are going to read, we looked at this morning, that we celebrate this morning. One of my favorite pieces of art, uh, and certainly religious art, is by uh, uh, Eugene Bernand. um, And we saw this at the Musée d'Orsay in uh, Paris. And it's Peter and John going to the tomb that rushing to the tomb. And what I love so much about this piece is how evocative it is of the emotions, of the fear, of the wondering, of all the things that we're talking about that are all involved into what is this and what is happening. How do we engage this story? What do we do? And one of the quick things to point out too is when we look at scripture and we look at these stories, The truth that we find in the stories is how they collect it and write it. So Luke, when he wrote this gospel, was writing it to a specific group of people. And Luke is a companion piece to Acts. Luke is saying um, and, and says right at the beginning of the book, I'm collecting all these different stories about Jesus and I'm collecting them in one place to tell a story. And I think a lot of times the way that we receive truth or we, we feel like how we know things are factual in our age is that it's a newspaper article. It's just a transcript of everything that happened. And scripture is different. We, we don't believe that every word that was spoken was captured and written down. And one of the ways that we know that, the unique part about the Christian faith is these stories of Jesus. We actually have four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they don't all have the same quotes and the same statements because they're not all telling the same story about Jesus. And the reason why that's important is because when you look at what they choose to include and what they don't choose to include, you can actually see the story of Jesus that's being told. And a lot of times what they're choosing to include has as much to do with what happened to the audience they're writing to. Who was it that was around the time when they were actually writing and collecting this work, and what did they want them to know? And one of the things that's unique about Luke is if you read the Gospel of Luke, again and again and again, Luke's saying, do you remember, like, Jesus said it here, and you didn't, you didn't get it. And then Jesus said it here again, and you didn't get it. And Jesus said it here again, and you didn't get it. And you didn't get it, and you didn't get it. And, get it. and I don't think Luke is just a, a jerk that's like, look at how dumb these people are, huh? Let's really spotlight the idiocy of the disciples for 24-plus chapters. I think the reason why Luke is doing that is because he's writing it to a group of people that are living later. And if you're familiar with kind of the the church history around this, so Jesus is Jewish. He comes from the Jewish people. And there's this feeling, this Jewish nationalism that's huge uh, to them and who they are. And it's being squashed down by the uh, invasion of the Romans. Not the invasion, the government of the Romans. The, gov- the Romans rule. And they keep on believing, if we can overthrow the Romans, if we can overthrow the Romans, that will prove we have God's favor. That God's blessing and favor is known when we rule the land. And that belief, that understanding about God, leads to a huge squashing of the rebellion and the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. If you go there today, you can still see the Wailing Wall because it's one of the only walls that still exists from the original temple that's still standing. And I think what Luke is saying is don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it. He's pointing back is, and there's things that are going on in your time and your life right now that you're missing about who God is and who Christ was inviting us to be. I think he's including these lines because he doesn't want them to lose and miss who they are. So this morning, while we're going to look at history, and we're even going to look at some American history this morning, the real message is to you today. There's things going on in your life. Don't miss it. Ultimately, the story about Jesus and the resurrection about Jesus is it's for the living. It's not for the dead. Meaning it's for our present and it's for our future. It's not just for our past. And a lot of times we exist in this understanding of Christianity or Jesus or faith or whatever it is in a way that has a strange relationship with our current reality. That's what we want to look at. My favorite line in the story and one of the reasons why we chose Luke is the line where the angel says, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? And I I think there's a couple of different ways to look at that. That is just the angel being a little snarky and just a sick burn, you know? (laughs) Look, idiots, why did you think he would be here? He told you again and again he would rise. But I don't think that's what it is. I, I think the angel is sharing a deep transformational truth to the women that were coming to put the spices on Jesus' body, to prepare his body in the tomb, and to the disciples. There's going to be a temptation over and over again for us to look for living things, live things, and dead places. And we're going to revisit these things over and over and over again to our own peril. See, I think there's like a difference just in general uh, between like deep, truths, transformational truths. These are the kinds of truths that you can take with you throughout life our a whole life and they serve us in lots of different situations and scenarios and lots of different decades in our lives. And then there's true enough. And what's interesting is I, I think we've been sold the gospel of true enough. The gospel of true enough is these kinds of truths and these ideas that work in specific situations and specific times. They make good like wall hangings at uh, home goods or target, right? And wh- when I say true enough, what I mean is we have two different examples here. Uh, how many of you ever heard, have, have ever heard of the statement, uh, "Pain is just weakness leaving the body?" Or maybe like good vibes only." You heard those? or seen those? Yeah. If you're trying a new exercise routine and it hurts, that might just be weakness leaving the body. You're developing a new strength. If you catastrophically tear every ligament and tendon in your knee, that's not weakness leaving your body. (laughs) That is a deep and serious structural issue that needs to be addressed immediately. Cease your exercise and activity and go find medical attention. Are you with me? Good vibes only works... If there aren't bad things happening. We can say in this house, like it's just good vibes only. But then what do you do with death and loss? What do you do with natural disaster? And when you hold on to true enough, in the face of the complexity of life, it can lead you into paths of insanity. It can lead you to do things that are harming to yourself. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Isn't good vibes only? It's a deep, deep truth that I think carries us through our lives. Let's do a little American history. And I promise this is going somewhere, but you'll see at the end if you agree with me. First, a question for you. And because most people that I've told this have been like, no, you're wrong. That's not... I I just want to say... (laughs) It's literally been, people are like, no, that's not true. So I'm getting this information from a book called In God We Trust by Kevin Cruz. He's a history professor at Princeton. Um, He's a professor of history at Princeton. If you had to guess statistically how many people, what percentage of American citizens claimed a church membership in 1850 pre-Civil War, what would you guess? 80, yeah. Probably like a lot of people, right? You'd imagine like before the Civil War, America, America, a Christian nation. It'd be a lot of people. In fact, 16% of the U.S. population claimed church membership in 1850. It climbed a little bit over the next 15 years, 20% to 36%, still a vast minority of people in the country, up to almost half in 1940, and then another big climb in just 20 years to 69%, which is the high water mark in the United States of America. And some other things, if you're like, I've heard different statistics, I've heard different things, I understand that. Just another story that kind of helps illustrate that. A lot of people, uh, the statistics say that 40% of U.S. citizens attended a church service within the last week. But recently, there have been some sociologists that have really looked into that claim because they said, really, 40%? Because it's just uh, the people that are asked, did you go to church last week? They're like, yeah. (laughs) What they found in further study is that it's actually closer to 20%. And one of the things that they found, they just found this in their research, one of the ways that they were able to help validate that is that if you look at uh, attendance as measured and reported by churches, and you take every church in the country and you average it out, it's 186 people per church. The vast majority of churches in our country are below 50 people. Um, The other large chunk is about 60 to 150, and then there's a lot Uh, there's a lot of people that go to a couple of churches. (laughs) There's like big mega churches. But what they did is they they said, if you take 20% of the U.S. population and you divide them up in the number of churches, you get 180, which actually lines up with the attendance as it's recorded. So there's this idea about our nation and who we are in our country, but how did we get this idea that this is like Jesus land, that this is the American, this is this country that's about Christianity and Christian values. 1920 is known as the Roaring Twenties, huge economic growth. Many would say unsustainable, unpaced economic growth. And that all came to a head in October of 1929, the great stock market crash. Uh, over a five day stretch, million stocks were traded because people were getting rid of investments at a high, high rate. They were shedding everything. And this catastrophic uh, economic development, which, by the way, was preceded by this huge unsustainable growth, that's kind of why we got the drop and the Great Depression, uh, really came on in earnest in the 1930s. In 1933, 15 million U.S. citizens were unemployed, which was about 20% of the U.S. population. In 1933, they have some statistics. In Lowell, Massachusetts, the unemployment rate was 90%. In Toledo, Ohio, it was 80%. Think about that. 80% of a town unemployed. Nearly half of the U.S. banks had failed in 1933. So coming into that was the election of FDR as president. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt launched, his big initiative was to launch the New Deal. The New Deal was to try and have this economic resurgence in our country that would be kind of funded in and through the government. And... When he was elected, his his New Deal had some really successful aspects to it. The Works Progress Administration hired 8.5 million people, and when you think that 20 million were are uh, sorry, 15 million were unemployed, which is 20 percent of the population, this was huge, huge movement. Uh, large development in our freeway system, the, the building of dams. One of the things that's interesting about our government and all the ways that the government puts in economic revival is that it will never come in conflict with private business. So it will only be money driven into things that aren't in competition with private practice or business. He also created Social Security, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, It was a big deal. And when he did this, when he created all this, some, some things were really interesting was the support that FDR had initially from churches. In 1932, his inaugural address had so many scriptural references that the Federal Federal Council of Churches released a companion piece to his inaugural address just linking all the biblical quotations. Just to talk about what they were and how they worked. And in fact, the same council, they praised the New Deal as the embodiment of Christian values. That this New Deal was this movement. Now, as I'm sure you've learned just in life, that with every action and every kind of movement, there's a reaction. And there's a lot of support for the New Deal, but there was also a lot of people that were pushing back. And one of the areas where they were looking to push back is there was near uniform support of the New Deal and this process by the churches. And yet, some people believe that there would have to be a push on the other side. There's this quote from H.W. Prentice. He's the president of the National Association of Manufacturers. And he said, economic facts are important, but they will never check the virus of collectivism. The only antidote is a revival of American patriotism and religious faith. We kind of have to link these two. And if you're wondering, okay, the National Association of Manufacturers, who he was there to support were the owners of business. Uh, their gatherings and associations were very much against the, the unionizing of any workers or the labor force in general. And they found a champion, a pastor. James Fifield, Jr. He was a Methodist pastor who served at the First Congregational Church in Los Angeles. His nickname was the Apostle to the Millionaires. He was down in L.A. Hollywood was a thing. And one of the things that he did was he preached the gospel of basically how we need to see that capitalism and Christianity are complementary systems and that these systems complement each other and work hand in glove because we have a freedom under God. Now, as he did his work, it probably wouldn't surprise you that he got some really prominent business owners to support him. Because as H.W. Prentice had said, if we can get patriotism and religion together, we can deliver a counter message to this FDR thing. Some of his... Benefactors, the people that financially supported him were Fred Maytag, Conrad Hilton, Paris's grandfather. <laughs> J.C. Penny and James Kraft. So not only did he have a lot of support, he had a lot of financial support for his ministry and his mission and what he was doing, but he was in LA, so he didn't just have... The support of business leaders, he had the support of Hollywood. Cecil B. DeMille supported his work. I mean, if we're going to put Charlton Heston in a movie, we can support this Fiffield guy. Bing Crosby, one of the kings of cool, was a big fan. Walt Disney loved what he was doing. And probably most interesting, a lesser known actor, but would go on to great political fame, Ronald Reagan, loved what Fiffield was doing and putting together. He started this thing out of his ministry called spiritual mobilization. And the goal of spiritual mobilization was to increase these messages in the pulpits, in churches. That we would preach more and more about the threat of socialism and how we need to move forward with capitalism and Christianity. Oh, uh, and we have a quote here. From Fifth Field, he said, "The blessings of capitalism come from God. A system that provides so much for the common good and happiness must flourish under the favor of the Almighty." To really drive this home, he he launched a competition in 1947, uh, and it was uh, a sermon contest where the theme was the perils to freedom. So in 1947, he launches this competition, a $5,000 prize, which is the equivalent of $57,000, 24,000 entries, which was 15% of U.S. pastors applied to this competition. It had massive, massive support. And in fact, later, Fifield gained the ear of the incoming president post-FDR when he came out when Eisenhower was elected. He was a big fan of two men. Uh, and that would be Billy Graham and James Fiffield Jr. And so what's interesting is that in 1950, with this movement that's been happening in the churches, a reaction to the New Deal, to, to combine these two things, we see some really interesting things happen at a national level that some of us have believed have been true forever. Uh, in 1953 was the first national prayer breakfast, 1954, under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance, and in God we trust was seen on stamps. 1956, a law was passed that in God we trust must appear on American currency. And in 1956, in God we trust becomes our nation's first official motto. E pluribus unum had been a kind of unofficial motto up until that point. The reason why I say these things and talk about these things isn't to say, well, politically, which side are you on? Clearly, we have a rebellion and we have an empire. Just pick your side. (laughs) I, I don't think that that's true. In fact, we see huge church support for both FDR's New Deal and Eisenhower's new movement, which would ultimately lead into Reaganomics and what we see in the Republican Party today. What I'm most interested in is, I think that we buy into this. That's a collective movement within our country. But I think individually, we believe in a resurrected Jesus as a power Jesus. Jesus was powerful. And if we get the right people elected, (laughs) thank you, that is the right reaction. That's a real piece of art that someone created earnestly. (laughs) And if you have grown up around Christianity, you may laugh at that image, but that idea is not insane, is it? That is Jesus, the conquering hero that's come back and is going to align with power in a way that will set everything right in our world. And the sooner we can align this Jesus and Christianity with the powers that be, the sooner we'll be in control, the sooner we'll be safe, and the sooner we'll be happy. Let's rewind a bit before the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had incredible popularity and momentum. You don't go around healing people with uh, blindness people that can't walk, lepers, you don't go raise someone from the dead and not get a following. You don't feed 5,000 people with a couple pieces of fish and bread without a huge following. Jesus was insanely popular. There's story after story where they say the crowd was so large that Jesus had to get in a boat and go off to the water because they were crushing in around him. He had to physically get away from them because there were so many. And what did Jesus do with that power? He led a political campaign. He declared for presidency. No, no. And, and, and this is what's important as well. Jesus didn't lead a military coup or try and gain some sort of political power that he could use to really drive home this good and better reality. Jesus also didn't ascend before the crucifixion. Jesus didn't say, hey, this is getting a little dicey. We're getting the wrong attention. Let's go hang up in the Decapolis and just kind of lay low. Jesus didn't say it's kind of dangerous to be around these more militant people within the Jewish community and it's gaining attention. Like, we just need to avoid the powers that be in the issue. And he didn't say the role is to overthrow the powers that be. I actually think it's one of the most important messages of Jesus is that Jesus denied the lie of retributive violence. Retributive violence is something that even if you're unfamiliar with the term, we all believe in some way in some level that there's an act of violence so great that it can end violence. And some of us grew up in this world. If someone's bullying you, go punch them in the nose. They'll stop. Someone's invading your country, go bomb them. They'll stop. In fact, our world lives right now on the precipice of the peak Of the lie of retributive violence. If we create enough nuclear weapons, if we can kill enough people with one strike, then we'll truly have peace. Jesus didn't do that and didn't allow that. And in fact, it's highlighted in the story of Jesus when he was being arrested, Peter pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of a Roman centurion, the guard that was coming to hurt and oppress Jesus. This oppressive military system that said, if you have any questions or you don't bow down to us, you get killed. And what did Jesus say? That's not what we're about. And he grabbed the man's ear and healed it. Jesus stepped into positions of power and he engaged but he didn't buy the lie that if we just gain all the power, then we'll really be in charge. And he didn't withdraw and avoid the whole thing and to say, no, we don't really engage with that. Let's just go over here and do our own thing. The reason why I say that on a macro level is because of what it looks like on your level and my level. I think... While you may be in a Christian church on Easter Sunday, the God most of us really want to serve is the God of control. I just want to be in control of my life and my world. And if I structure things and I work things in such a way, then I can be in control. If I gain enough of the power around me, if I gain enough of the influence around me, then I'll be in control. And being in control makes me safe and makes me secure And lets me know that I will be loved and I will be okay. What did the angel say? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? What are the tombs that we go running to, expecting to find life, and there's nothing there? I think control and I think power is right there at the top of the list. We keep running back to find control in our world and get power in our world. Listen to the political conversations that are happening right now. If we just get the right person in charge, then we'll be okay. Then it will kind of fix all the problems. And the amount of time we spend living in this reality that is a complete denial and rejection of what Jesus actually did is astounding. I hate to burst anyone's bubble. There is no Christian party, political party in our nation today. There are political parties that are bent on finding power in ways that they best feel like can serve the population. But this is not the path of Jesus. Jesus sees through it all and he leads us down a third way. One that involves suffering. One that understands that there is pain in life and living. It's not good vibes only. But sees that that is the path that leads us to life. That's the path that leaves tombs empty. That's the path that is the way that we were created to be in the places we were created to go. So this morning, what is the angel saying to you? Are there tombs of the right relationship? Are there tombs of the right job? Are there tombs of the right amount of control that you'd have over your world and your life that that would bring you freedom? That is where the life is that you need to recognize as an empty tomb. Does this mean that we, we don't engage and we just kind of let life come at us and have its way and do what it will? And when we suffer, well, it was meant to be. no. Jesus wasn't passive in his life and his ministry. And Jesus also didn't buy that lie. And so the question for us to ask ourselves as we engage in our lives is, how am I engaging in this world? Am I confronting the power that is harming other people while still not believing that if I had the power, we get enough people like me in power, then we'll be okay and we'll be safe? That, I think, is the good news of Easter. That there is fresh life, that there is new life springing up in our midst that we get to be a part of. There's a merry-go-round that is spinning a million miles an hour in our world today, and we get to get off of it. We don't run away from it. We still engage it on a day-to-day basis, but we're able to get off. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for resurrection. God, I thank you for the hope of new life in the face of death. And God, I thank you for empty tombs. God, I pray that today we would be able to identify the empty tombs in our lives. God, we would be able to stop going back To believing that if we just have enough power, if we just have enough control, then we'll be safe and we'll be okay. God, I pray that we would wake up to this present moment. God, to the deep truth that you are moving and operating in our lives and in this world in ways that are alive. And God, you're inviting us to meet you there. And God, it's a rejection of the places we've gone in the past that have proven to be places of death, that have proven to be empty tombs. It's in your name we pray, amen. So would you stand? May you go this Easter Sunday knowing that Jesus is risen and the invitation is for you to walk in life, to walk in truth, and to engage and involve yourselves without buying the lie that you being in charge is where true freedom lies. Amen and amen. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.